Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. This episode sees us return to the Gulf states, looking at the United Arab Emirates. The UAE is a federal collection of seven states or emirates. They are Ayman, Dubai, Fujairah, Ras Al-Khama, Sharjah, Umm al-Gawain, and the capital, Abu Dhabi. Despite the fact that its status as a federation means power across the UAE should be shared between these seven entities, today's subject, Mohammed bin Zayed, has orchestrated a massive centralization of power, so that one emirate, Abu Dhabi, now indisputably runs the show. Bin Zayed, who has been the de facto leader of the UAE since 2014 and formerly its president since last year, is a member of the ruling Anayan family. Under his watch, the UAE has grown in stature and confidence internationally, with China, Russia and India now seeing the Emiratis as reliable partners. What was 20 years ago a staunch US ally is now strategically more agnostic, looking both east and west simultaneously. Many millions of Europeans vacation in Dubai and Abu Dhabi every year, and Emirati companies adorn advertising spaces across the world. The image Bin Zayed and the Emirati elite want to perpetuate is one of openness, stability and dependability in a part of the world perennially lacking all of these qualities. And it's worked. However, this image, like every facade, seeks to obscure an uglier side. The centralisation around Bin Zayed has seen the UAE government control its population through coercion, renunciation of citizenship and torture. My guest today, a British citizen, knows all too well what the Emirati state is capable of, having been held by the authorities under suspicion of being a British spy for six months in 2018. He is Matt Hedges, the author of Reinventing the Shakedom, the book he was researching when he was arrested five years ago. Matt's case matters because this is a state that wields tremendous influence inside the UK. And, as you're about to hear, our government weren't exactly busting their hump to get Matt released. Some of our parliamentarians are still making excuses for the Emiratis in Matt's case, even now. If this can happen to Matt, it can happen to anybody. And it is happening to British and other Western citizens right now. So you might want to listen to this before you book your next holiday to Dubai. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Mohammed bin Zayed. Good evening, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. It's my pleasure. Matt, we're talking about Mohammed bin Zayed today. Mm-hmm. He has been the president of the United Arab Emirates uh, since last year, officially, yeah. and he's been the de facto leader of that country since 2014. The United Arab Emirates is a, is a collection of seven uh, fiefdoms, sheikdoms, as you call them in, mm-hmm. in your book, Reinventing the Sheikdom. Um, these sheikdoms have existed in some form or another for centuries. But how old, as a starting question, how old is the UAE? So it was founded in 1971 by Sheikh Zayed. It gained its independence from the British who had ruled what we know today as the, as the Persian Gulf, um, at least the southern aspects of it, but also had a 
um, a large influence in, in neighboring Iran and Iraq. Uh, going further back, they controlled the entire area and they actually ruled it from India. But what the, the British did in, in this region and many other places was they referred to local political and tribal figures to kind of act on their behalf. And so this is where families such as the Anahyans, which is the tribe which Muhammad bin Zayed um, descends from, these were one of the, the tribes that ended up ruling on, on the UK's behalf. And they are now the ones leading these new founded states. So the ruling family of the UAE, the, the Anayans, um, if, if we think about 1971 as a, as a kind of starting point for this, for this um, federation of sorts, mm-hmm. um, its first president was Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan. How did he kind of succeed in keeping these seven emirates, these fiefdoms, in check with one another? Sure. So as you said, there are, there are seven emirates. Sheikdoms. The Emirates is the, is the legal term. And like the Anahyans, they all originate from their own unique political, uh, social political environment. So each of those seven different ruling families will claim to own certain territory. And they represented the people within the area. And this is due to their charisma, this was due to their leadership or their resources. Unlike, say, in Bahrain or in Saudi Arabia, where they have kings um, or emirs, there are different political connotations attached to these different titles. Now, for, for Sheikh Zayed, he actually overthrew his own brother in a coup. Um, and this was because his brother, Sheikh Shakut, wasn't deemed to be a particularly efficient governor. And this is a governor of, of Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, it, it, it was a poor emirate. You know, this, you know, beforehand, before the, the 70s, before the discovery of oil, the power actually lay in the emirates of Dubai and Ras al-Khaimah. This was because those emirates were more externally faced because they were traders. They had the connections with Iran, with India, and they made lots of money, as well as pearl, pearl diving, pearl fishing. So it was actually an accumulation of, of different issues, but oil absolutely was the biggest factor that then shifted the power from the other six emirates towards Abu Dhabi. So the contest of power between Abu Dhabi and the other six emirates was, was personal. It was historical. Um, Abu Dhabi is the biggest emirate within the region. And it cannot be understated any, any less. Oil significantly shifted the power balance because 91% of what is today's uh, the UAE's oil is actually located within the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. But this was this doesn't represent the conditions of 1971. And so the Emirate of Dubai wanted to be in a much more equal footing with the Emirate of Abu Dhabi when they uh, founded the state. But those historical animosities were so great that the Emirate of Rasulheima didn't actually join the federation until a year after its creation. So it wasn't seven emirates at the start, it was six. 
But within the UAE's constitution, the capital, the de facto capital, was actually supposed to um, was supposed to move year on year. So it would have been one year in Abu Dhabi, one year in Dubai, Sharjah, Ajman, Fujairah, with a new city to be built on the border between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And this was to demonstrate the power that these uh, that the other Emirates had, and how how poor Abu Dhabi was was seen at the time. But as we've you know, moved forward from there, if Abu Dhabi possessed 91% of the, of the state's total oil, and this is what has driven, this has been the, the bedrock of the development of the state, you can then understand how and why power has increasingly solidified within uh, what is the capital now, Abu Dhabi, formally, and it, it doesn't tend to, to spread much further than that. It also doesn't tend to spread uh, beyond the Anayans either, particularly. Um, if we look at the Anayan family, I, I mentioned um, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan, the, the first president. You, you write in your book about the considerable kind of internal competition within this family. Um, how big is the family, roughly? Uh, it's certainly not a lot smaller than the Saudi royal family, and that's the royal family because it's, it's in the thousands. Uh, the Anahyans, um, as a, as a biological family unit, it would be in the hundreds. Um, it, would be, it would certainly be in the hundreds, but it is the the tribal confederation, um, the Baniyas, as, as its much broader uh, coalition is called, and this then goes into the hundreds of thousands. And so the Baniyas, the, the, the this elite tribe, this confederation of tribes, when you can identify what that is, all you have to do is then look through any single government ministry, any, uh, any embassy, any, any, any powerful entity that the state has, and you will see these tribes in every single position. You, you, you will be able to identify them very quickly. It's not a monarchy. It is a federation of states, yet within the federation of states, there is a, there's more than an equal amongst the others. It is simply not a tribal democracy of sorts. It is the absolute uh, centralization of power. If we introduce our subject today, Mohammed bin Zayed, mm. um, he was born in 1961. He was mm. the third son Correct. of Zayed bin Sultan the first president. What would life have been like for the young prince growing up in the 1970s and <laughs> 80s um, in this relatively new country, a country that is becoming much wealthier uh, sure. due to its resource wealth that you mentioned? Um, mm -hmm. What was what situation would uh, Mohammed have found himself in? Immediately, there, there was the, the retreat of the, of the British Empire, this, this long-term ally, the not just the UA, but all of the other Gulf states had actually wanted the UK to continue keeping their position within the region. They offered huge sums of money to get them to do this because there was such competition between, there's such fragility, not just even within the UAE itself as a state, within those different emirates, but also within the other GCC states. Saudi Arabia tried to take they tried to claim a huge part of, of Abu Dhabi's territory, 
which is where the oil is. And, and it was actually the UK that intervened to stop this from occurring. You then had the Iranian Revolution in 1979, where, a again, another supposed Western ally was, was overthrown and taken by an extremely hostile and politically charged entity, which continuously grew and grew and grew. But the Emirati citizenship was very small. It's still only just over a million citizens, and this is across seven emirates. So it's taken a lot of time to to undergo the transformation to, to what we see today. With an enormous immigrant population too. That's it. So it's the UAE, like all of the other Gulf states, less so with Saudi Arabia, but it's they're estimated to be about 90% of the country are, are immigrants. 10% are, are local, 10% are native. And when you then have that social change, when you come from a Bedouin family that you were born and brought up in the desert under very traditional uh, circumstances, to have traveled from that position to where we are today has to have a huge impact on your, your outlook. Now, then from Mohammed bin he he saw his elder brothers, Khalifa and Sultan, he saw them put into much more uh, grander formal positions of power. Um, he was still, he was still a, a you know strong favorite of his father, and that was you know largely in part to Muhammad bin Zayed's mother, Sheikh Fatima. She's seen as uh, as Zayed's favorite wife. He was especially loved, and it generated another principle, another power for him. So without that direct authority, that direct leadership, Muhammad then underwent a career within the military. And it was only into the, the mid to late 90s that the UAE's military was actually unified. It was unified under his leadership. The other emirates still had their own independent forces. And this tells you the, the state of the country. If, if there were separate militaries, um, it tells you that it wasn't a united country. And so he's seen a huge centralization of power. He has seen huge commercial, social development capacity, uh, wealth, but also threats. So then we come into the, the, the thousands, and there were the terrorist attacks in New York. There were two Emiratis in, in the 9-11 attacks, as well as several others who were, who were radicalized within the UAE. And very quickly, the US, the UK, and others undertook a policy of you're either with us or against us. And this is where that significant shift, that significant embrace of a Western orientation uh, started to occur. But Muhammad had been, um, before that point, he'd been head of the Air Force, and then he became chief of staff of the military. To summarize, do you think that this man is somebody who kind of understands the world beyond his own small corner of it? Do you get that impression? I'd maybe change the parameters and say he understands people. If you see when he has engagements and how he's led engagements, as well as the development of, of organizations under his leadership, they are extremely personal in the way that they are undertaken. This is, again, similar to, to that tribal 
mentality, that, that, that traditional background of dealing with people directly, he has these you know, their meetings, their engagements that are they tend to be informal, where you can have a much more relaxed conversation, where you can be um, you can try and develop those friendships. Now he's obviously shown over time that he he certainly has understood how external states and actors are what motivates them, and he is assisted by you know, hiring extremely adept strategic communications personnel. He puts the right people in the right places, and he he develops extremely powerful nodes, networks to to help you know foster and develop his own ambitions. But as his power has grown, that confidence has also shown a different side to him. So Zayed bin Sultan yep. died in two thousand and four. His eldest son Khalifa. Mohammed's older brother became president. Um, Zayed had been in charge for for thirty three years. That's quite a long time. And you and you, in, in some quite interesting detail, there described some of the changes that the UAE went through in in the, that sort of thirty years or so, um, becoming probably economically more prosperous, but also much more aware of its of its potential fractiousness and the, the potential and the potential for um, destabilization. I want to talk a bit more directly about. How the regime works then, and in sure. the time that that um, MBZ, as he's known, careful not to mix him up with MBS. Um, <laughs> if we think about as he becomes more powerful, as Khalifa's uh, time in power continues after two thousand and four, um, you use the metaphor early in your book of of the UAE leadership being like a Russian doll. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? And and if you think about the UAE under Khalifa from two thousand and four onwards, um. Where does MBZ come into that Russian doll? Sure. So, rather interestingly, upon the death of Sheikh Zayed in 2004, there were huge, huge public discussions and uh, engagements that Mohammed bin Zayed would actually take over as president of the UAE and not Khalifa. By go... Um, to, to, to kind of sidestep the, the that policy of primo uh, primogeniture. With that said, it's a much stabler policy to go from eldest son and onwards, and this is this is part of the issue, say in in, in neighbouring Saudi Arabia. But Muhammad had, because of his career in the military, he had that key security block under his direct kinship. So when we think about those layers within a Russian doll, he then had the security establishment, not just the military, but also the, the internal security, directly under his, his patronship. He had also started, uh, several years earlier, started a sovereign wealth fund called Mubadala. But Mubadala nowadays is, a, is, is, is well known as a, as a huge international economic player this was personally developed by him, not by the state. It has become a, a vehicle for his own ascension, for his own projection of power, but also in, in developing domestic networks where, where people have grown within it and over the years of his ascent, you now see them as ministers, you now see them as, as the chiefs of industry so 
that's another aspect, or another two or three different layers that he's able to leverage. He, he is, he's created and exploited different, different personnel, different networks, different organizations to help shore up his own, his own leadership. He, he's in fact created a, might be called like a deep state, but in effect, he, he really has um, made all of these organizations as much about him as they are about the state itself. And you know, to, to take that example further, we saw after the UAE's uh, after the UAE entered the Yemen war, it then started a, a, a strategy a campaign of national service. So every single Emirati national had to go and undertake national service. But this is then an organization that has a deep affinity to Mohammed bin Zayed. Because he was chief of the Air Force, because he was chief of staff, there is a direct um, psychological, social connection with him as a person. And so if, if, if the institution has been created around him, and now every single Emirati goes through it, even when he wasn't president, they still have this direction towards him, like like a father. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these comparisons that you make in the book between the security of the state and the security of the regime. Mm -hmm. And those two things, I think, in people's minds instinctively might be sort of melded into one or or quite close anyway. Maybe as a way of kind of teasing out the difference. In a sort of liberal democracy, where governments are sort of naturally constrained by the rule of law and by constitutions and by kind of conventions and things like that. Um, What would an example of the government foregoing its own security, that's to say the regime of itself or the the regime in favour of the security of the state? Can you think of an example, perhaps as a way of... um, In the UA or or just generally speaking? Just just in general, as as a way of maybe acting as a kind of foil to what's going on in the UAE. I suppose you, you have right now, you have Sadiq Khan in London with the, with the ULES scheme. Sadiq Khan is trying to, to, to he's been able to, to, to deliver this, this scheme which has absolute merits um, on an individual level for, 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 for personal health. Of course, it is also driven to, to try and develop some of the, the, the London mayor's budget, but it's also extremely unpopular. So it, it, it's never really going to, to help him win an election, but he's doing this, at least he believes, for, for, the, for the greater good. Um, it, it could be he could be dying on his sword and it you know, should, whenever there's a, an, a next mayor election, he could lose it and the policy could be thrown away. But then he he he's, he believes he's doing that for the good, whereas Mohammed bin Zayed and, and many other autocrats undertake policies that have that multifaceted, comprehensive impact to support them. That they always maintain that sponsorship. So if if that leader dies, if they go down, if they have any form of criticism, they've co-opted entire parts of society alongside them. Is is that kind of what you're asking? Were you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. It's not always entirely clear where the state ends and where the regime kind of starts in some of these scenarios. And that, that I think that example, that comparison, sets it out quite well. 
So Binzayed um, became the kind of de facto leader of the UAE in January 2014. His elder brother Khalifa um, had a stroke, and and after that, I think performed largely um, sort of ceremonial duties. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of crux of your book is that the UAE has become vastly more centralised um, since around about that time and possibly before. I mean, you particularly cite the Arab Spring as a turning point in that. Thinking about what we've said so far about like, the you know the Russian the idea of the Russian doll, keeping of the fiefdoms in check, um, what would you say has changed, kind of in operative terms, um, in the UAE since the Arab Spring? The Arab Spring took place, of course, in 2011, so it was a little bit before MBZ became the de facto leader, but he was already probably mm-hmm. the second most powerful person in the UAE. I'll give so him that- first. That there has been that continued economic expansion, industrial expansion, but the UAE's international position has dramatically increased. This is both the result of its own growth and the the capabilities it's been and the the logistic ties it's been laying down. So now it really is the central hub in talk about China's. Uh, belt, one belt, one road. The UAE fits perfectly within this when we talk about Russia's north-south corridor and its expansion to Africa. Where does it go through? It goes through the United Arab Emirates. Um, this also happened alongside the administrations in the US of, of Obama, of Trump and Biden, who are all largely isolationists. They've all sought to reduce the US's position internationally. And so they've seen their biggest security, external security guarantor, set back. They've seen Europe and, and the UK collapse in, in, in any, any form of, of prestige, of any form of power capability. And so that's all happened whilst oil prices have continued to elevate hugely. Their power and, and potential has, has been immense. So you now have a very confident UAE involved not just in a region of instability, but within a position of of huge prospects. And so this is then why they have become more assertive, more confident in international activities in in a very uh, shady sense, right? Did they continued investments? They've been involved in, in cooperation with NATO, but then they have also increased cooperation with Russia militarily. They are now the central hub for for um, a lot of Russian wealth, for companies potentially uh, looking to circumvent sanctions. The UAE is absolutely, fundamentally at the very core of this. The other is, is security. Okay, so, so security and the biggest lesson that they learned was Hosni Mubarak, this long-time American partner, they saw him overthrown in Cairo, and the U.S. stood by and did nothing to protect him. So they said, this, this will not happen to us. They looked at the example of Assad and Russia, and they said, we don't like what he's doing. Uh, we don't like the way he's doing it, but we like what he's doing. And we like what Russia is doing to help support and defend his ally, Assad. So this is the the domain, the world in which they've they've experienced within the last decade. So 
I mean, it, it's fascinating how quite how important the UAE is relative to its size um, and the number of kind of uh, quarters that it has internationally. Um, I think Modi was in the UAE in July. Uh, Bin Zayed went to 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 meet uh, Putin in St. Petersburg about six mm-hmm. weeks ago. Um, I think India and the UAE mm-hmm. conducted a, a naval exercise a but couple of weeks ago. they've also pegged trade to the rupee. Uh, to yes, the dirham, yes, right, and so it's it's bypassing any form of of Western observation, which in the in, in the background of say Russian oil, gold, diamonds, the the development of China and, and the Shanghai Corporation, the UAE is is demonstrating its its increased distance from that Western centric orientation. Um, and, and so when it can be used for China, for Russia, for India, in the opposite direction, this is the true value it, it's trying to show. It's, cl- it's quite clear that the kind of centralization that has gone on in the UAE in the last sort of 10, 15 years, the reason for it principally was the increased power of this regime. Right. Um, but in... If you think about Saudi Arabia, um, mm-hmm. a country the UAE is often compared with, Mohammed bin Salman is kind of seen as having centralized power as well in the same time period. Mm-hmm. But he's used that power domestically mm-hmm. um, to embark on a series of, of social reforms in, in relation to women and in relation to, to loosening mm-hmm. um, some of the, the quite strict uh, Wahhabi um, doctrine that, that, mm-hmm. run, that has run the country traditionally. Um, does MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, of the UAE have a kind of wider domestic vision, however defined, beyond sort of just holding power? It, it goes back to actually what we said before, and it's, it's a really interesting way to put it. We, we previously spoke about the federation, the competition between the Emirates, the fact that one of the, the seven didn't join until a year later. Through, through instances such as national service, through instances such as the complete um, ownership and direction of, of national industry and economy, as well as efforts such as COP, such as the, they had the, the, they had the World Trade event, these are all then taken and driven by Abu Dhabi. This is where the ministries are. They're not in other areas. It absolutely is under Mohammed bin Zayed, is his, his drive to centralize the state and to rewrite it from a federation into a single nation. This is absolutely his, his brief. He continues on trying to sell the idea to the West that the UAE is tolerant. You'll often hear this in, in their words. You'll see it in when they justified uh, to their own citizenship as well as to the region, the Abraham Accords, the formalization of ties with Israel. It is absolutely about, look at us, we are modern, we understand, we're educated. What that's then also saying is, we're from a region where people aren't educated, where people aren't tolerant, so you should look at us. We are are the best ones. It is the, the attraction of of commerce, the, the free laws, the trade, the logistics. It's then trying to be a, a friend for all. And this is Muhammad bin Zayed's 
current ambition is to balance between the West and the East and to have the freedom to do what it wants. I mean, this is the contradiction here because this image that the regime wants to to propagate has been underpinned by extraordinary repression of mm-hmm. the people inside the UAE. Um, and this really is what is what your book is about, is how um, this centralization has happened. If you think about the kind of um, threats that Bin Zayed sees, the internal threats from inside the UAE, you say in the book that you think that these internal threats are more mm-hmm. fundamentally threatening to his regime than external ones. Um, what are those threats? Can we just try and spell out um, clearly what they are, or at least what Bin Zayed thinks they are? So what he thinks they are come from, uh, if, if you see it as a, as a pyramid, as a hierarchy of threats. At the very top are those from within the elite, be it within his own family or within the ruling elites, the ruling families of other emirates, by trying to push back on his campaign to to mutate the state from one of a federation to a nation. And, you know, there would be merit in both arguments, but it's they would be the ones losing power, he would be the one gaining it. So that's always going to be a threat because he has to be able to, to win them over and, and demonstrate why it benefits them. You then have Emirati citizens. Because of the tribal structure, because of the social fabric where if you are an Emirati from this emirate, currently standing, it, it, see it as some form of representative democracy. You are born, you are from a tribe, from a family in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. You obviously don't vote, but what you do is you are part of a coalition that supports the idea of the Al-Nahyan being the ruling power within the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, which in turn means, because of the constitution and the way things have developed, they rule the country. But if you were then an Emirati from, say, Russell Khaimah, which is significantly poorer, which is significantly more underdeveloped, and you embed, you cede your power, your your, your authority to the ruler of Rasakema, that means, yes, fine, you, you may demonstrate your concerns with him and, and, and his establishment, but they are then ruling on behalf of Abu Dhabi, whereas before they would have had more power. And this is where the real issue comes up, because Within a federal state, should there be concerns, those concerns would seek to weaken, would seek to reduce that, that, that centralization pro- project and empower those federal elements. And one thing I, I, I discussed in the book is you know, the greatest demonstration was during the war in Yemen, the UA's formal involvement in Yemen. Over 50 soldiers were killed in one attack. And this was when the Houthis fired ballistic missiles at a, a military base in Yemen. At that time, and over a period where the UA had suffered significant amount of casualties, I, I trace the martyrs, their names, their rank, and their emirates, where they were from. And much like in every other state, 
those that died, they were more likely, significantly more likely, to have been of lower rank, but also from the emirates of Rasakema, Fujairah, Ajman, which not only have smaller populations, but they're also poorer. Whereas there weren't as many people that died from Abu Dhabi or Dubai, because they're richer, because they're more developed, they're more educated. This manifested in some very small-scale protests in Rasakema. And internal security, well, the state security, the equivalent of the KGB, uh, you know, that, that, that is exactly what it was because the KGB was the Ministry of State Security. So the UAE's state security went to Rasakema and they took the ruler of Rasakema and his brother, who is the head of police, and they took them down to Abu Dhabi. But if it's supposed to be a federal state where these powers are uh, split, if the security establishment, which is then actually headed, the Minister of State Security is Mohammed bin Zayed's eldest son, now Harlad, this, this really demonstrates the fact that power is absolutely formalized within Abu Dhabi, but that the very, the, the sharpest issue for them is from the local population and from disrupting the status quo. So if you're an Emirati, and you speak out against Bin Zayed. What happens to you if you're an Emirati in that situation? What will the state security services? So if, if you're lucky enough to come across the state security, they can have initial discussions with you and, and, and get you online. Uh, I know of individuals whose family members were fired from jobs as a form of soft coercion to get the other in line. Jobs can be rescinded. You could be uh, given more years on your national service. Again, it, it's soft coercion as opposed to prison or, or worse. It's about then forcing you to get in line, the, the stick more than the carrot. Because if you're already stepped out of line, they don't go the route of carrot to entice you. They go the route of stick to, to force you. You could also then be taken by state security. You could be imprisoned. You could go through enforced disappearance because of the, the separation, well, sorry, the lack of separation of powers within the state. The judiciary is, is, is all selected by the presidency and especially with state security laws, it's all secretive anyway. Um, so if you, if you do come up into that atmosphere, the people that are supposed to be protecting you, the state, are the ones actually going after you. Now, what they have also been known to do, especially to those imprisoned, they then run a program of rehabilitation. But what we've then found is that rehabilitation program for prisoners under political crimes or what the UA would refer to as terrorist crimes, they continue to be in these rehabilitation centers beyond the serving of their sentence, you know, nearly indefinitely. So they they can absolutely find ways to enforce that restriction upon you. But should all of this uh, not be enough, the UA also undertake a scheme to remove the nationality of, of some Emiratis. 
And what they do is they give them a Comoros citizenship. This is something widely undertaken, by the way, across the entire GCC. So you are not legally then stateless because you now are a Comoros citizen. Um, so these are the different ways in which the UA state security would go about trying to elicit that control and power. So this uh, state harassment is especially pertinent in respect to you, Matt. Um, in May 2018, you were in the United Arab Emirates um, researching the book that we've been discussing uh, today. And something very traumatic happened to you. Um, can you explain what happened to you five and a half years ago? Sure. So in, in live terms, as, as, as I saw them occurring, I was in the UA for two weeks undertaking some research fieldwork and my family lived there. So I was also seeing them. I previously worked in the country. So I was also seeing friends. I was taking some time off. When I then tried to leave the country after two weeks, I was stopped at the airport by state security and was informed that I was under arrest, that I had no choice but to go with them. And this is, by the way, when state security is plainclothes police officers, but also there were men fully in black with masks holding guns and not pistols, like significantly larger guns. But then uh, when trying to understand what was going on, actually I wasn't under arrest, but I also couldn't have a lawyer because there was no case and I simply had no choice but to go with them. I ended up staying with state security in a, um, the simplest way to, to look at it is a black site. It, it's beyond any formal, any, any formal organization, any formal responsibility. It lacked oversight. I was there for seven months in solitary confinement. Uh, I was being put through interrogations up to 15 hours a day. People in other rooms were, I could hear them being beaten. And I saw evidence of beatings in terms of blood, uh, evidence on the walls. I was often deprived of sleep through bright lights, through very cold air conditioning. And I've, I've since learned this is to support the, the your adrenal system into continuous um, threat responses. I was then also forced to take medication that was both stimulants to make me more energetic, more I would concentrate, um, but then also medications that were um, antidepressives, antihistamines, sleeping tablets to, to keep me docile. And that balancing between stimulants and, and antidepressives in a broader term are still a huge part of my life. And this is five years after I was released. Absolutely a huge part. When I was there for seven months, I, I, I was vomiting blood for over a month. I tried to commit suicide. Um, I had seizures in my sleep. It was a very, you know, of course, it's a very dark period of my life. I confessed to the charges and I confessed to the, the claims being made, made against me because I had no other choice. The other choices that were given were rendition to an overseas military base where I wouldn't ever see the light of day. There were th 
threats to my family, to their livelihoods. I could hear those beatings occurring. So if they wanted to accuse me of being a, which the charge was, which I was found guilty of, was being a, a, a British, a member of, of, of the UK's MI6. Just admit to all the charges because the other options were uh, not worth considering. Just before seven months uh, and about a week after my sentencing, I was given a presidential pardon and I was then released uh, back to the UK. That was the that was the seven month experience in a nutshell. I mean, that's a hideous <laughs> ordeal that very few people listening to this will be able to relate to in any sense, really. How, in terms of what they actually wanted to get out of you and the confessions that you gave, what did those confessions actually look like? And how, how did you deliver them? One of the biggest issues that they were concerned about was my contacts and relationships with Emirati nationals. This was the biggest issue for them. I've since learned that Emiratis were were forced, they were, they, were, they were picked up by state security and they were forced to sign statements stating that they would never speak to me again. I know others had been punished, but this then expanded to every single one of my contacts through my phone, through my email, any, any form of interaction I've ever had, then became a, a topic of concern for, for the Emirati state security. Now, some British nationals in the UAE were deported because they had been in contact with me. Uh, friends of mine from countries such as Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Yemen, Russia, they were picked up and spoken to by state security forces from their own countries. So for example, the FSB in Russia, Russia's state security, spoke to people I knew and asked them about uh, their interactions with me. So imagine the the impact of of what was happening and what what state security in the UA wanted, but you know personally speaking, beyond the the trauma, it was a fascinating experience because I could see I was getting a, a first hand experience of of their mindset. On the one hand, everything I was saying was complete rubbish, and it wouldn't be hard to dissect it. It was it was complete crap let alone the fact that it isn't based on anything it's me pulling it out of a hat but when there were were honest genuine uh, questions being asked such as who is your source you know to do with uh, military numbers or figures of martyrs i would have to explain to to those agents and to the state security prosecutor i'd say uh, listening I'm, I'm very sorry excuse me but if you have a look at the bottom of this page it will tell you it, it's a reference to a book. You can buy the book online. You can you can go down to the shop. You can have a look. It's all there. Say, no, no, no. Who is your source? Because I've asked my friend, and this is an accurate um, figure. But what am I supposed to say? Because it, it was undertaken generally through, through academic research, and it's available publicly. But they wanted me to, to falsely confess to someone giving me this information and uh, uh, an echo of this that, that stays with me is, were they doing this and they, they knew that they were doing it as a, as a lie, just as a way to, to, to string me along? Or did they really, truly believe 
the conversation that was ongoing. What conclusion have you come to on that? <laughs> um, sadly, it's the latter. I, I, I do truly believe that they thought that I was a member of MI6 and everything I was telling them was accurate. The reason why, if it had gone on for seven months and they had charged me with being a British spy, not any other charges, but being a British spy and handling secretive information, the latter, by the way, was reduced to handling sensitive information, which you know can be anything. This has to have the approval of Mohammed bin Zayed or, or Sheikh Khalifa to go through this process because you are then stating that the UK, one of the UAE's allies, was doing this against you. Now then, the reason why I do believe this is what they thought is because we see similar examples of this all around the world. The the theory is called the dictator's dilemma, and that people from a a policeman on the street or an army army, soldier who's being posted for, for whatever reason, he tells his superior inaccurate information, either because he's scared to tell him the truth or because of, you know, if there could be any repercussions against him or because he wants a promotion. So he invents and makes up a, a lie to make it seem as though he he's in good shape. But once this then like Chinese whispers continues up, going from uh, from from officer to their superior, this ends up with a, a disastrous decision being made. And we can see this happening all the time. We, we saw it in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. We saw it in, in, in Saudi Arabia's invasion of, of Yemen and the war against the Houthis. It shows a, a, cata, a catastrophic lack of, of understanding and awareness, which has led to, to, strategic, um, to strategic failures of, a, of an epic scale. This was pretty big news in the UK when it happened. Um, the spat between the governments ended up involving Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister at the time, Jeremy Hunt, who was the Foreign Secretary. Um, I mean, the UK and the UAE are, are close partners in all sorts of ways. There are you know, fairly regular phone calls between mm-hmm. Bin Zayed and his team and whoever the Prime Minister is. Um, yeah. There were plenty <laughs> of them. Um, I mean, what does it tell you about the relationship between these two countries that the UAE were basically happy to lock you, mm-hmm. the citizen of an erstwhile ally, up mm-hmm. for six months, sentence you effectively to life imprisonment, um, subject you to torture. Mm-hmm. What does it tell you about the relationship? So it firstly tells me that the UAE is, uh, has grown in confidence and stature, and they believe that they can do this and they should do it like any other country. It, it, it shows that their lack of respect for the UK. It also tells you that whilst there may be uh, certain phone calls, some engagements, that it is very high level, very strategic level um, demonstrations, but it may not be the same on a more operational or tactical scale. There may not be that same level of engagement, trust, cooperation, but only at the top for, for demonstrative purposes. I would then go further to say, what does it then also tell you about the UK government and their reluctance to to protect the rights of a a British national 
in the country of a supposed partner or ally being charged for espionage on behalf of the British government and their lack of, of support, which we I'm, I'm not sure if you may have seen from a few weeks ago, the, mm. the UK's parliamentary ombudsman yeah. uh, reported that the Foreign Office had seen evidence of torture um, against me in the UAE and that the Foreign Office caused an injustice by not uh, you know, doing yeah. enough to, to, to help me through this. So it also tells you that for the UK, they were they were struggling. They 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 they, they were not willing to support or defend me because they were also worried about the relationship with the UAE. To be honest, though, mm-hmm. I read that that's actually how I found out about you, Matt. Is is the fact mm-hmm. that the parliamentary ombudsman? Because I, I was researching that as part of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I found out about this, and. I've got to be honest, I wasn't surprised because if you look at the way that the British state kind of fawns over the Emiratis mm-hmm. and over the Saudis and the Qataris as well, um, it really isn't a surprise. I mean, the Emiratis own you know huge swathes of land in the UK. They own Manchester City, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the most successful football club in England. They're, they've got a deep foothold in our economy mm-hmm. and in our politics. I mean, when you see um, members of the Anayan family celebrating with the Manchester City squad when they win the Premier League, or when you see Rishi Sunak with, with Bin Zayed, or members of our royal family with the Anayans, mm-hmm. um, how does it make you feel? It, it, it would, on that very, very, very top level, that tells me, um, it gives me, it reinforces the idea that humanity... <laughs> As people, we are we are bad. It's it's, it's like the banality of evil. We we are um, we are corrupted. Now you can understand there is an argument for for that very top level strategic um, relationship to always need to endure. Okay, you can have this, and you should have this really across the board. You need to be able to maintain those channels of engagement because without it, you then. You can't communicate what you need to communicate. What was more galling for me is when you see MPs. When you see MPs chasing, you spoke about fawning. MPs have been doing more. They, they have been chasing um, these discussions, these partnerships. And one, one MP, uh, I won't name him, but he was heavily, he was central to to what was happening to me um he was very negative about uh me and what i was supposed to be or what i was doing in the uae but then following his position as minister of state for middle east he then became chairman of the emirates society through the uamc in london and has also been investigated for lobbying on behalf of the uae for the UA selection and actual successful confirmation of Major General Nasser uh, Ahmed Al Raisi, the UA's Minister of Interior Inspector General, to the position of Interpol President. Now, Raisi is one of four uh, defendants against my claim to torture uh, in the UAE. I have a civil claim and a, and a criminal case open against. Major, Major General Nasser Raisi and three other individuals for torture. So then to have British individuals 
supporting and lobbying on behalf of him. It's disgraceful. It is absolutely disgraceful because it it, it shows the disdain for, for, for British rights, for British citizens, but also ultimately for, for the image of the UK. If they're, they're not willing to go and protect and defend one individual, it means they're not willing to protect the image of the UK itself. And they are simply doing it for, for personal gain. It's always so strange because our MPs and, and our kind of governing class love to talk about Britain as being a global power and as being really powerful on the world stage. But they're willing to submit to these tiny Middle Eastern countries and kingdoms. I think what's... It, from we're in the UK. Many listeners may be, you know, from the UK or or abroad. But you know, growing up, we always um, had a perception of politics in the US as a as a different language, as a different world, because of the the openness of lobbying. That money could buy influence to then decide how laws are changed or amended or enforced or removed. And we thought this is crazy. That you know, we would would hate to have this in the UK. It should be with people through votes. But when we've seen the, these engagements, these partnerships, it's hard for us to, to think how this isn't a form of lobbying in the most formal sense. Um, and th there's been a huge surge in activity recently with British MPs doing this. Um, one case actually being Tobias Elwood, is that right? Elwood, yeah. yeah. Elwood. So, 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 one example was Tobias Elwood. Uh, I think he's the Minister of State for Defence Affairs, I believe, or Veteran Affairs. Um, Possibly like Defence defense Committee defense, Chair, some, something like that. Something like this. And he wrote an op-ed in The Telegraph stating how the UA is building bridges within everyone and it's a very sensible partner and it should be a key ally for the UK. And this was in a week when the UK and the UAE were when they had actually then completed the signing of a strategic communications partnership and, and a way to, to, to fuse these relations. And I'm there thinking to myself, on whose behalf did you, did you write this or did you write it? Are you doing this for, for another purpose? Because when you look deeper into it, this is very clearly not the case. And we've seen the amount of of activity between the UA and Russia, between the UA and India, and, and now a massive spike and increase in the UA and China. So whilst the UK is is trying to to chase after any any handouts it can get from the UAE, the US has taken the opposite step and they are starting to to undertake security reviews about their relationship with the UAE. Um, because they understand that those dynamics have changed. It, it, it's very interesting to see that contrast. I mean, you spoke earlier about how the UAE sort of seeks to peddle this image in the West as being tolerant mm -hmm. and being open. They clearly aren't. Mm -hmm. Has it worked, do you think? I mean, obviously governments, especially our government, they will always see what they want to see. Mm -hmm. um, do you get the impression that it's worked on the public at large? I mean, it would be very difficult to know. Um, no, no, absolutely, and I think it, it is actually easy to, to 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 see a manifestation of it. Very easy to see it. So they, the soft power, the you see Emirates, you see Etihad, you see the amount of advertising they have across sports, 
public institutions, but look at the amount of tourists that go on holiday to the country and how that has how those numbers have increased. So if if there wasn't a positive image of the of the UAE, they wouldn't be as many people going. But actually it's increased and it continues to do so. This then means that they have to a degree succeeded. Justin, we, we're just talking about the, the UAE's um, projection of, of, of soft power to the West. We're not talking about anywhere else, just the West. That has absolutely succeeded. Now, it hasn't been particularly smooth, certainly in the last five, 10 years. In my case, there was the, the case of Mohammed bin Rashid undertaking hacking, death threats against his ex-wife, Princess Haya. In, in, a, in a London high court in G1, I, I believe it was about 800 million in damages. You've had the Pegasus affair. You've had uh, people being arrested, tortured for, 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 for you know, for random uh, non-criminal cases. And this has started to change that image. Now, when you're speaking about the idea of tolerance, it, it's a fascinating issue because they have especially recently they've been been uh, highlighting the fact that they're open to other religions that they uh, are now uh, i believe it's the only only gulf state to have a synagogue to have a, Jew, a, a sizable jewish community it's growing hindu temples hindu temples but they're then the way that they're, they're marketing it and and displaying it is is saying it's a very it's, it's like a self-orientalist view that look at us we're developed because we do this, but everywhere else where there aren't these same conditions, look how backward they are. We're tolerant in, by comparison. That that that's how they that's how they demonstrate that. But it's also uh, fascinating because while they they, they show a degree of um, tolerance domestically, the the Ministry of Religious Affairs writes the sermons. They write a sermon um, for every Friday, uh, you know, Juma prayers. And this is then distributed across all the mosques in the country. And it's the exact same sermon, which is then produced by the state. So there is no freedom of, 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 of ideological thought because they have to have control over it. And that doesn't speak uh, about tolerance to me. This was, of course, the response to, to the events of 9-11 and, and the rise of, of terrorism within the region over the last 20 years. It doesn't show a degree of tolerance for other people's independent thinking. Just to bring this to a close and to mm -hmm. bring this back to Bin Zayed himself, um, we spoke about the internal threats that mm -hmm. the regime comes under. I want us to imagine what the UAE would look like without him and what it would look like without the Anayans. Which of those threats would be most likely to get to um, dislodge Bin Zayed? from power and which threat do you think would be most likely to remove the anayans themselves from power now obviously one of them is a personnel change and the regime would sort of continue um mm -hmm. without him yep that's the first one the second scenario is a is a kind of whole scale revolutionary change Correct. i just want you to what what would instigate or cause those scenarios that power is 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 directly the result, um, you know, really, of that economic development. 
as I said earlier, it's 91% of the state's oil is, is based in Abu Dhabi. And so from this, they've been able to not just drive the change, but shape it into their own image. They also share this wealth with the other Emirates. But with that come strings and conditions. The 2008 financial crash, which saw um, a, a bailout of the government of Dubai by Abu Dhabi, it, it, it further accelerated that that process of centralization. And this is Dubai with a, with a heavily diversified, diversified economy, and they had to get a bailout from Abu Dhabi. But if you then perceive this, if you, if you compare this with the other Emirates who are much poorer, much smaller populations, they don't have the same international standing, they are, or the rulers, sorry, are completely at the whim and, and, and control of Abu Dhabi. Now, were those conditions to change and were they to, I don't know, say, find huge oil or gas reserves? Were they to find diamond reserves? You know, something that would significantly alter that power relationship and dynamic. It's unlikely that there would be some any form of influence from those other ruling families to try and flatten and balance that federal identity. So instead, what could change this, this, this dynamic would then ultimately come from popular engagement, civil engagement. Um, could this come in the form of, say, xenophobia, that Emirati nationals are unhappy and upset about the, the amount of foreign citizens that have flood into the country and their perception that they're not being looked after? Could they seek to find a way in which they would be empowered themselves? Could it be claims from the expatriate community from, from you know, if they're 90% of the country and their votes are then being diluted, could they respond? It's unlikely that, that there would be anything, uh, any, that, there is no space for civil discourse and civil uh, civil society. There, there is absolutely no space for it. So they can't develop it long term to be able to replace it. You would still have to go through the same paradigms um, as we currently see in terms of a, a federation. So if 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 there isn't some form of internal balancing, um, the other extreme, and it is an ex a very extreme scenario, would then be a civil war. There would be some form of, of 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 clash between the Abu Dhabi ruling family or the ruling families of the seven emirates with said force, but that is a, a highly unlikely scenario um, to occur. But we're, we we've we've heavily focused, and as I have done in the book, on the relationship with the Emirati population as it currently stands for the short term. But the biggest fundamental threat to the country is the long-term sustainability and development of, of, of the state. The oil reserves will, will obviously run out at some point. The country um, is a huge consumer of energy. The wealth is built on this and the continued support. But if, they, if, if the state can't continue to provide for its citizens, thus legitimizing its its lack of taxation, its lack of, of wider involvement, what then happens when they have to start taxing populations, when they have to start um, 
expanding the relationship and putting it on balance with the local population, let alone the impact of climate. If it's over 50 degrees for over a month or two a year, how habitable is this to live in? If you have to import all of your food to, to desalinate the water, which is a hugely high energy usage uh, production, how are you going to be able to achieve this if you don't have the same budgets you currently do? Um, so there are fundamental changes and issues for the long term. And in the short term, it's simply about holding on to power through, through any means possible. Matt, thank you. That's been an excellent conversation. If people want to find your book uh, mm -hmm. and want to find out more about you, uh, where can they go? Sure. So, so firstly, the thank you very much, Tom, for the uh, for the suggestion. The the book is called Reinventing the Shakedom. It's published by Hearst, but you can find it on Amazon. You can find it other good online booksellers. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at m hedges h, which is m h e d g e s. H, and if, if anyone wants to, to to contact me, please please don't hesitate. Send me a message on on Twitter or follow me. Happy to talk to anyone. I can I can discuss and, and kind of show some of the the personal work that I've been engaging in since I've come back, which is a real mission for me, which is helping other survivors of torture and trying to change um, perceptions to be able to help other British citizens, such as enshrining in law rights for consular access because currently british nationals it is not a a legal right for the government to to defend you so i'm, I'm heavily involved in lots of social and ethical means and i um i will continue to do this for as long as i can do but yeah look look out for my uh for my book please look out for uh my conversations on twitter if you if anyone wants to get in touch don't hesitate and yeah, I, I look forward to, to speaking with you again, Tom, uh, and, and thank you to all your listeners for, for taking the time to, to, to hear it through to the end. Thank you, Matt. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.